Please stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of God. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived at Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And they opposed and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names, your own law, see it to yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and seized Sothenes, ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Here is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's go before the Lord and ask for his help in understanding his word this morning. Lord, we come before you once again in prayer. And I ask for help to communicate your word to your people. And Lord, help us to, re- to hear um, correctly and apply um, these glorious truths to our own lives. Minister to your people, Lord, in this time by way of your word preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Ordinary ministry for an extraordinary savior is the title of the message. Um, The Apostle Paul um, is on the move in this, his second missionary journey. Um, And as regards um, redemptive history, I think that, that many people tend to look at Paul's life and they view him as some kind of, you know, Bible superhero. It's easy for us to do. Not that he's divine, but beyond the bounds, you know, of normal humanity. I think that's the way we view Paul oftentimes as we read the scriptures. You know, he preaches the gospel, he's falsely accused, he's falsely imprisoned, uh, beaten. And while he's in jail, he sings hymns. (laughs) He's whipped 
And he gets up, and it seems as though he just walks it off. He goes on to the next stop, and he does it all over again. And we think he is not like us. And I think we're inclined to see his ministry as being carried out by way of the supernatural. The extraordinary. While we live and we serve and we carry out the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ in an everyday, ordinary, boring way. I mean, in his epistles, right? We read Paul and he writes, he, he calls himself weak, the least of the apostles, the chief of sinners, a jar of clay, a fragile vessel. We read that and we sometimes think, eh, I think he's striving to merely relate to us. You know, he's pretending to be like the rest of us when in reality he's really uh, a super apostle, a superman. So we read Acts more like a comic book sometimes than redemptive history being carried out by the providential workings of the Holy Spirit in a very, very ordinary way. And we can get so focused on the facts of what is happening that we fail to really understand how God is doing that which is happening. I think chapter 18 helps us to see that the word, the, the, the word of the Lord is, is carried out by the Apostle Paul, who really is, is an ordinary man, called by God to do extraordinary things by way of very ordinary means. So let's look at the account. In verse 1, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. Okay, and that is after the confrontation with the intellectual elite um, in the city of Athens. Uh, the reception was minimal, so he departed. And later, Paul would write these words. We read it this morning. Not many wise, many mighty, or noble in this world has God called to himself. But it is the lowly, the weak, and the base that God has chosen to confound and to shame the self-proclaimed wise of this world. I say self-proclaimed wise because Scripture is clear. The beginning of wisdom is the, the fear of the Lord. And then from Athens, he travels about 60 miles or so to cosmopolitan Corinth, uh, we could call it the Vanity Fair of the Roman Empire. Here, Corinth is a city that boasted in its wealth and culture. It was a very diverse culture. I'm glad that our church is very diverse. That's the way that the church should reflect something of her community. We're very diverse. Not as diverse as Corinth. <laughs> in Corinth, it was, it, that, that city was home to Greeks, Italians, Jews, and all kinds of peoples from the east. It was the center of trade and travel with sailors and caravans passing through regularly. It was a host to the world-famous Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games, hosted there every other year. It, the center 
um, athletics, track and field, boxing, wrestling, um, javelin, and, and discus throwing, and so on. But above all, Corinth was known for its immorality. It was the original sin city, if you will. Um, and above the city stood the very famous temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, hosting 1,000 temple prostitutes that roamed the streets of the city of Corinth at night. So the promiscuity of the city of Corinth actually became very proverbial, and anyone who was caught up in immorality would be referred to as one who had been Corinthianized. And if you really wanted to give someone a low blow in insult, you would refer to them as a Corinthian. A Corinthian, the city of Corinth. So it was a very prideful and corrupt city where Christ established a church. The church of Corinth. What can we say about the church of Corinth other than it was a scandal-ridden church? I mean, we read in 1 Corinthians 5, that in that church, a man has his father's wife, his stepmother, or his mother-in-law. It's not clear. I mean, that's in the text. And yet, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you, Corinthians, are called to be saints together with all those in every place who call on the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints. It's amazing. The only explanation that we have for the Corinthians is that God loves them because God loves them. That's the only excuse I have. That's the only excuse you have. The reason God loves you is because he loves you. He fixed his eyes upon you to love you salvifically. So Corinth was a complicated place. It was a tough place to minister, no doubt. And sometimes God calls his people to serve in very difficult circumstances. And here is Paul from Athens to Corinth. And God providentially, in a very ordinary way, provides him people to serve alongside of him for the sake of encouragement. Paul makes some new contacts here in verse 2. Notice, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. Now, they're, they're likely already Christians at this point. They've been dispelled from Rome by way of some disruption there, and we see them at least, 50, at least three times in 15 years um, saddled up alongside of Paul, ministering, encouraging, providing edification along the way. Verse 3, he, Paul, came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. Here you have people absorbed with the gospel, Ananias, I mean, not Ananias, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, for some reason, I always call Aquila and Priscilla Ananias and Sapphira. They're always on my mind. Who, who God knocked dead in the church. So here, Aquila and Priscilla are, are people absorbed with the gospel, encouraging others in the gospel. That's what we're called to do. May we be absorbed with the gospel so that we can encourage one another 
in the gospel. So Paul joins them. He probably lives in their home at this point. And at this time, he has to earn a living just to survive. A couple of points to note here. Number one, Paul eagerly engaged in team ministry. He sought it out. He was not an individualist. He wasn't a superhero, single man, going about serving God. He always teamed up with other believers. God does not call us to serve on an island, beloved. Amen? He does not call us to serve separated from others in the church. And that's why we have elders here, plural. A plurality of eldership in this church because we're imperfect because we are fallible. We have a team of deacons who are gifted differently. So we round out the gifts of the Holy Spirit by way of a plurality of leaders in the church. Paul surrounded himself with people gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve, to encourage one another. And that should flow out and into the congregation amongst God's people. It's not good to be a Lone Ranger Christian, friends. You'll be consumed. You'll be swallowed up. You'll probably be bitter, and you just wander off alone. Slip in, slip out, complain a lot, and you go at it alone and no accountability. That's a dangerous place to be. Paul never allowed that to happen. Side by side, team-spirited brother. Second point we notice here is that he worked hard. Here he's tent-making. Now, it was, a, it was common amongst Jews in that day to train their sons in some specific trade. And Paul's was tent-making. He preached on the side. That would have been exhausting. All Jewish boys were taught some trade, and the rabbis actually had a saying in this day, and it was this, he who does not teach his son how to work teaches him how to steal. So Paul's father trained him up in tent making. So here he is with Aquila and Priscilla, who were also tent makers, teamed up to to earn a living at this point. He's not a full-time preacher or a paid preacher at this point, so he works hard. But eventually when his friends come, verse 5, he was able then to devote himself, notice, completely to the word. Reason being, financial support came in from Macedonia. He writes to these Corinthians later. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. Notice what he says. I robbed other churches. That's hyperbole. That's hyperbolic statement, obviously. He's exaggerating. By taking wages from them to serve you, he says, for when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. In Philippians 4.15, the church in Macedonia, Philippi, he said this, chapter 4, verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. So here they are faithfully providing for him. And this is why Paul will later write to Timothy In 1 Timothy 5.17, notice he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So that financial support released Paul to do what he was called to do. But until then, he labored tent making. God calls us to work hard, amen? We are not to, to fritter our time away. 
Sadly, some Christians fritter their time away. Not Paul. (laughs) Not Paul. In verse 5 here, we see that Paul fulfills his responsibility. He goes on, he he faithfully preaches. Notice, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So here he is, once again, in the synagogue, teaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. He's Messiah, and he preaches this. He preaches, you have not honored God, you have not worshipped God as you ought. You are sinners, but Jesus has come to atone for sins. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the temple. He's the tabernacle. He's the fulfillment of all these Old Testament sacrifices. It all points to him. Forgiveness comes through Christ alone. That's what the man preached. The gospel. Repent and believe. He said time and time again. So here he testifies to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He is promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Verse 6 But, notice, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook off his garments. This is amazing. He responds to their resistance and blasphemy by doing something that was highly offensive to these Jews. This is very, very offensive. He did to them what they typically did to others, specifically what they did to Gentiles. This was a Jew's way of humiliating or or casting degrading statements upon Gentile people. They would shake off their clothes, having become defiled by being in their presence. They would shake off the dust. So this was part of the psyche of the Jewish people, not to come into contact with anything unclean. So Paul takes this and turns it on them. For the ultimate blasphemy. He gives them a taste of their own medicine. They blaspheme. They reject the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So Paul turns their custom around on them. He shakes off the cloak, his, the dust, so to speak, right in their faces. That's offensive. And notice what he said. Your blood is on your own heads. I'm clean. I'm clean, he says. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Friends, this is Ezekiel 18 language right here. Because God said to Ezekiel that the prophet is like a watchman. The prophet is like a watchman on the wall. A watchman would sit upon the city wall. He would look out. If he saw danger coming, his job was to alert the people. Ensuing danger. If he saw an enemy coming and he sounded the alarm, but they refused to listen and were taken away, that would be a tragedy. But he was innocent of their blood. The watchman would be innocent of their blood. On the other hand, here, um, if he saw his enemies approaching, they ref- he refused to sound the alarm and they're overtaken, their blood is on his head, his hands are unclean. So God told Ezekiel that his call as prophet and preacher was the same as a watchman. Go to the people. God said to Ezekiel, go to those people. You tell them that God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is looming. 
You've turned from him. Turn back to him. Repent and believe in your Lord. And you won't be judged. So Paul sees his ministry in the same way. A watchman on the wall. And he says, your blood be on your own heads for rejecting God's son. Do you remember in Matthew 27, 25, when the people were crying out for Jesus Jesus to be crucified? Do you remember what they said? They said, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and our children. And many of those people, I'm sure, are in hell to this day and forevermore who cried out, let his blood be on us. That means we accept the responsibility for his death. So Paul says here, I'm unclean. I fulfilled my responsibility. He shakes off the dust in their face. He says, you've had a great opportunity to hear the good news of Almighty God who saves sinners like you. I come to you first, the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Repent and believe. You reject him, I'm done with you. And he departs. This is a scary thought, is it not? You think about the people, even in our own country, who've heard the gospel so many times, over and over again, that they become immune, immune to responding to it. In one ear, out the other. Yeah, Jesus came and died. Yeah, it's Christmas time. Jesus came, born in a major. Yep, yep, yep. Super, uh, was he really a virgin, born of a virgin? I don't know. Think again. Think again. And he came to die. And you think about people who listen and become immune to responding to the gospel, and it's almost as though God shakes off the dust and he leaves them in their sins. God forbid. God forbid. If that's you, repent and believe. He stands with his arms wide open. I said to an unbeliever this week who continues just to want to refix God in their mind, I said, yet he calls you today, come unto me. Come unto me. Repent and believe. Come unto me, and you'll be saved. But by grace. You know, every preacher is a watchman. They're called to preach the whole counsel of God. And those who do, at some point in their ministry, I'm telling you, at some point in their ministry, they are tempted to tone it down. Tempted to tone it down. Because when you speak authoritatively the words of Almighty God, the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are putting yourself out there. And someone each and every week is going to be offended. I was talking to the men on Thursday night. I said, my goal every week when I preach is that people leave here, whether you're Christian or not, either glad, mad, or sad. Amen? Amen? You could be edified in the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Or perhaps you're a Christian who's frittering your time away, and you're offended because I said so many Christians fritter their time away. Repent. So you walk away mad, or you walk away sad. Or I walk away sad when I hear the word preached because I have loved ones who don't believe. Very close to me, they don't believe. It's almost as though they're becoming immune to the gospel, so I'm sad, I'm grieved. But my confident trust is in him. Our responsibility, as was Paul's, is simply to declare the whole truth, nothing but the truth. The results are his. You're not gonna change anyone's mind or heart. 
Don't even try. Declare it and move on. Now, after this rejection, notice, Paul moves far from the synagogue. Notice this. Right next door. He moves next door to this synagogue. Verse 7, then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Paul moved in right next door to hell. Right next door to hell, the synagogue of Satan, where, where the people who proclaim to be God resist God's Christ, his son, right next door to hell. And if you're thinking, how could you say that? I didn't say it. Jesus did. Revelation. Chapter 2, to the persecuted church, notice what he says. Chapter 2, verse 9. I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, church of Smyrna. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. To the church in Philadelphia, Chapter 3, verse 8, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and not, are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The word of God is beginning to spread in the city of Corinth, and the power of God is beginning to take effect. So there's going to be positive response and negative response always when the word is rightly declared. Verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Here's the positive side, and all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing in being baptized. There's the positive side of the sword of the spirit, the sword of the word, cuts in and divides, pierces to the heart. Notice the sequence, please, of these who believed. Notice. You hear the gospel, and by God's grace, you believe the gospel, and then you publicly proclaim that faith, and then you're baptized. See the sequence? You hear, you believe, and you're baptized. Faith, Romans 10, 17 tells us, comes by hearing a speech about Christ. Literally, quite literally, a word about Christ. And here faith is birthed. You hear, you believe, you get baptized. And here the Lord is blessing this work in Corinth. But whenever God blesses his ministry, Paul's or yours, with increased opportunity, you can expect there's increased opposition as well. And here it is in the local synagogue. So you have the fruit of opportunity with the guy who runs the synagogue. He gets saved. Many Corinth, Corinthians are coming along and they're being saved. But they're stirring rage within the same city. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said that the devil, the devil he never kicks a dead horse. He never kicks a dead horse, meaning that as we do God's work, the proof that the Spirit is at work is that there will be opposition to the word proclaimed. Always. So here, in the midst of all this fruit, and there's opposition now starting to rise up, notice Paul was beginning to struggle with fear. 
fear. Paul was beginning to struggle with fear after this victory. This is not unlike Elijah. Do you remember when Elijah conquered the prophets of Baal, just destroyed them all? And then he went into this nosedive of depression, and great fear gripped him because of the threats of one Jezebel. And he runs off in trepidation. Just an ordinary man. Great prophet of God, ordinary man. Here's Paul. Now remember, Paul had been run out of almost every town he entered. It's likely at this point he has not recovered from his beating that he received in Macedonia and limped his way to Greece and then on to Corinth. He's been stoned. He's been imprisoned. He has been left for dead, really. He's traveled afar, most of which has been on foot. And these things have a way of piling up on a man. This is just a guy. He's afraid. So on top of that, he's living amongst the uh, perverted ruins of humanity in the city of Corinth, surrounded by evil iniquity. He's in pain, so you have opposition, and amidst all of this corruption, here's a man who's ministering to people, and he's fearful. He's afraid. How do we know that? Verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. Go on speaking, do not be silent. What's the temptation? To be silent. To not speak the truth of God. Jesus said this to the most fearless, bold proclaimer of the gospel in church history. Do not be afraid. Why? Because he was afraid. Paul was not a superhero. He is a human being who has fears that plagued him. He's troubled. I mean, everywhere this guy goes, he gets beat up. And getting whipped never got to be fun for Paul. Man is just a man. This is something that happens to Christians all the time. We get, we're gripped by fear. Now, we're not going to be able to relate to the ministry of Paul, obviously. We're not apostles. We're not called to do what he has been called to do. But we will face opposition, probably not bodily harm as he did. But when we're down like this, as Paul was down, we have a tendency to forget. Forget what? that God is always with us, always. Paul was in prison. Where was God? With him. He was beaten. Where was God? With him. He was stoned. Where was God? With him. We put other portions of scripture next to that, and we realize that's probably when he was left for dead and perhaps even did die. Because remember, he said that he was caught up to the third heaven, whether conscious or unconscious in the spirit of spirit, I don't know. It could have been when he was stoned. Don't know for sure. The guy had been around. God was always with him. God's always with you. Some of you are going through very severe trials, troubles, temptations, health issues. God is with you, Christian. 
You ever find yourself tempted to be afraid to share the gospel with people in your life, right? For instance, you become comfortable at work. People like you. Your coworkers like you. Is that a good thing? Yeah. I want people to like me. We want people to like us, so we're comfortable. We're at lunch with them, and the, the conversation begins to shift to things that are important, you know, worldviews, um, questions and thoughts about God, and all of a sudden, you're given an opportunity, <clears throat> you clam up. You ever been there? We, I think we've all been there. I've been there. You know, it's easier to preach from here than it is one-on-one out there. It just is. Or you have a neighbor committed to some false, weird religion, some cult, and for, for, because of fear, we, we, we steer clear. Perhaps. We're afraid. There's relatives. It's Christmas time. There's relatives you want to speak with about the Lord Jesus Christ, but you know it's going to cause trouble. So you clam up. Fearful. Paul was there. We all have relationships where we know we ought to speak to people who do not know Christ, but we're afraid. Why are we afraid? Because we do not know the outcome of that conversation. And we're fearful because the outcome is beyond our control. We fear what we cannot control. When I sit back and think, why does this thing have me fearful? Because it's beyond my control. There's nothing I can do. Fear is a response to powerlessness over the future. Will this friendship end? If I talk about Jesus, am I going to give up an opportunity for this promotion that's on the horizon? Things like this. We fear. Paul feared. See, the fear of man with regard to the gospel puts a kink in the hose of gospel flow. It just does. And there is a spiritual war going on behind the scenes. And it is real and it, it is fierce. Ephesians chapter 6 describes it. You can read later today. We do not wrestle merely against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. So therefore, take up and put on the whole armor of God that so you may be able to stand and resist in the evil day. And again, all the entire armor of God protects how we think and how we feel. Now with regard to fear, some of us live, live gripped by fear about things that never come to pass. Witness? You think about things, this is going to happen, this could happen, and it never happens. So you're borrowing trouble. You're creating your own tribulation. Thinking about what may happen. So here, verse 9, the Lord says, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. That would be his temptation. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Many people. He's to go on speaking, notice, because I have many people in this city. They just don't know it yet. 
These are people that God has preordained to be saved in eternity, in eternity past. They don't know it yet. But Paul, as you speak, you are going to be my ordinary means of grace that reaches those my people to be brought unto me. So do not be silent. God has ordained who he's going to save and how he's going to do it. And here it's through the preaching the means of God's grace by way of the mouth of the apostle Paul. Preach, he says. Stay there and preach and preach and preach. Don't stop. Bring the gospel for many are mine in this city. Corinth, wicked Corinth. And I love them because I love them. Do not fear. See, that's, look at, notice verse 11. And he settled there a year and six months. A year and a half, he stays teaching the word of God among them. Them who? Those who are my people. And they don't know it yet. That's evangelism. Friends, evangelism is not a flash in the pan event. This is evangelism. Many times Christians go to places and they dig a well and they spend most of the week taking photos and movies of themselves so they can come back home and put on the internet, look everything, look, look at all we're doing for Jesus. And it's really about us. Here's a man who remains here a year and a half preaching, teaching. And then in verse 12 through 17 while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul, brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime of some sort, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat, and they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Now, since Christ haters never relent, but by the grace of God, Christ haters will relent when the grace of God touches and transforms their lives. Um, they get bowed up against and want to attack the preachers of the word. So here, they're brought out to the Bema seat. This is the judgment seat, the tribunal, where this proconsular would sit and make judgments. He refuses to take the case. This is a Roman this is Gallio. This is the older brother, by the way, of the famous philosopher Seneca, who was personal tutor to Nero. Later on in Nero's life, he became more and more wicked, and together, Gallio and his brother Seneca would eventually be involved in a conspiracy to assassinate Nero. He has them both beheaded. And eventually, he'll behead Paul. Amazing. 
So at this point, Paul is standing before Gallio, and Gallio considers this Paul, he's not causing any violence here. He's not causing any social upheaval. I am a Roman. These are Jewish people. They're disputing over words for which I have no interest whatsoever. So he refuses to be judge of these matters, verse 15. So instead, notice he says, this is your own in-house debate. This is a religious matter. I am not going to rule over your concerns. Notice, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Okay, notice, friends, they did not beat Paul here as God promised. They beat the other brother. God didn't promise he wouldn't get beaten, but he promised Paul, stay here, you will not be touched here. And he's not touched. He's dragged to the tribunal, but they didn't lay a hand on him. They beat Sosthenes. Now, the name Sosthenes appears in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, with Paul as a companion. Now, if it's the same Sosthenes, we don't know for certain. If it's the same person, that means two leaders of this synagogue in Corinth came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Woohoo! Fruit of the ministry in the midst of this opposition. Okay, there's the account. Okay, there's the account. And I want us to consider some things because I know Christians sometimes get um, discouraged, a bit downtrodden, because they look at Paul's life and they look at um, saints throughout history and all the great things that they've done and they must be superhero conquerors and I'm just an ordinary guy or gal. But I want you to think about this. In the book of Acts, early on, what do we see? Time and time again, we see many prevalent miracles as the ministry of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is beginning to spread. Supernatural works of God. But as the years pass and we move on here from place to place and the church of Jesus Christ is expanding, the ministry becomes very, very ordinary. The signs of an apostle, they begin to fade out. They begin to fade out. Just read the scriptures. I mean, early on, we see a lame beggar healed in the name of Jesus Christ, and he leaps up like a deer. In Acts 5, we read this. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Later on in Paul's ministry, he talks about a faithful co-worker in the ministry, Trophimus, whom he left ill in Miletus. He didn't heal him. There's no sign, miracle of the apostle there. Timothy has a stomach issue. He doesn't heal him. He says what? Take a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Ordinary means ordinary ministry. God ordinarily provided fellow tent makers to serve alongside the man to co-op in him with ministry, to do the work of the ministry, making their way cutting patterns, sewing them together, probably in their home. Ordinary means, 
God provides for Paul's ministry. Did money fall out of the sky? No. Did he find it under a rock? Did the Holy Spirit say, go look under this rock, like Shawshank Redemption, under this rock, it's a shiny rock, there'll be no other rock like it in the entire valley. Look under the rock and there's something there for you. He didn't do that. Ordinary means, through the hands of ordinary people, brought these funds from Macedonia so the brother could preach full-time. Amen? Very ordinary. I love it. The tribunal. God promised not a hand would be laid upon you. He's dragged to the tribunal, and God, by ordinary means, through providence, this Roman judge, he says, I'm going to have no matter in this. You guys deal with it. And then they beat Sosthenes who I hope and think was converted and was at one time the second leader of the synagogue, another convert. When Paul preaches, we never read that there are 3,000 converts as there were when Peter preached at Pentecost. At one time, ordinarily, he preaches. Ordinarily, there's opposition. Ordinarily, one, two, or three come to faith through ordinary means. Don't be afraid. Paul, preach on. Isn't it great? I, I hope this is, is encouraging to you as it was to me this week. Ordinary ministry. Ordinary people. Think about this. Jesus came to earth. God, second person of the Godhead, and God hides him in the womb of a woman. He grows up about two years old. Herod calls for all males two years and under to be slaughtered in the area of Bethlehem. And what does God do? He hides him in Egypt. They take an ordinary trek down to Egypt, and they remain there until Herod dies, and they go back home, and they bypass the area of Bethlehem, and they reside where? Nazareth, where the second person of the Godhead has to sit in synagogue week after week after week, knowing more than all of them put together. He has to obey his mother and father. Ordinary means to God's glorious gospel grace. Jesus has to remain silent with regard to who he is until a particular day at the age of 30 when the anointed one comes and presents himself to Israel at his baptism. Very, very ordinary. Until he conquers the kingdom of darkness by way of his public ministry, casting out demons by the power of God, and the demons recognize who he is. We know who you are. You're the son of the living God. Until then, it's very ordinary. Jesus had siblings. You, you have trouble at home with fellow siblings or, or parents who don't believe, who think you're nuts. I've said this before. So did Jesus. Remember, they thought he was loony. They went after him. They thought he went, it was out of his mind. His own brothers did not believe until after his resurrection. So if you have problems with Loved ones who don't believe, Jesus understands. He lived an ordinary life on this earth and died 
a sinner's death. Think about your life. It's just a little application as we wrap up. Okay, you, you come in here and we meet week in and week out. The ordinary means of God's grace, the proclamation of his word. We partake of the bread. We partake of the cup every month. We come here. We sing a hymn. This hymn you say I like. That hymn I don't like. I don't like that a music, musical arrangement. I like that one better. We whine. We complain. But we come by faith to receive a very ordinary means of grace. Amen? Some people make you happy. Some people make you sad. Some people delight you. Some people upset you. We're called to strive and to, to work out our indifferences together. Amen? Very ordinary ways in a very ordinary life, a very ordinary church filled with ordinary people. <sighs> you have a trial and it ends. What comes next? Another trial. Ordinary life. You got kids here who are sniffling. My grandkids came last night. We were all excited to bring them to church, and my daughter-in-law brings them sick. <laughs> it's an ordinary life, man. Amen? But they're still going to sing in that program next week. <laughs> Amen. So here we are. We, we pray, Lord... You know, I, I told the men this on Thursday. I said, I went to bed the other night, and I said, Lord, would you please just make me wake up and be more like this? You, you get all the glory. You get all the glory. I want to be more like this. And it could be anything. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but it could be to be more compassionate, more loving, more bold, whatever it may be. And then you wake up, and you still have the same weaknesses all stuck and attached to you. Right? Ordinary people... Very ordinary people serving the Lord, extending his kingdom by way of very ordinary means, but we, these ordinary people, serve an extraordinary Savior. Amen? That's the heart of the message of the Apostle Paul. Let it be ours this Advent season and into next year and the coming years. Amen? Father, we do thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience with us. And Lord, we thank you for your patience with the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord, for your son's patience as the second person of you triune God who came to earth and lived a very, very ordinary life in the midst of extraordinary things going on in history, all to make it to the cross to die for our sins and to rise again. In him we rest and thank you and ask for help to make these ordinary vessels um, serve faithfully um, our extraordinary Savior. We pray for his namesake. Amen.